0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Back from the
1: Week That Was. The dynamic in the federal election campaign has changed once again, with surveys this past week putting the Aaron O'Toole conservatives in a slight lead over the Justin Trudeau liberals. On Monday, Jane Brown was filling in for Libby and was joined by the Zoomer squad to get their takes on the campaign to date. Here are David Kravitz, chief membership officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media; Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP; and Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine.
2: A lot of people thought, you know, we're still in COVID. It's it's a summer. The government was strong. It hadn't fallen. Um, you know, they hadn't faced any non-confidence motions. Um, why, uh, they're, they're, you know, Afghanistan is in flames and why call an election right now? So, so I think what we're seeing is the early Trudeau lead has evaporated, um, based on sort of, um, O'Toole's managing to not have any gaffes so far and also just general disdain against the election. So, um, it, it looks neck and neck here right now. But again, we have to look at, people who say they're voting NDP now and then whether they actually follow through with it at the polls we we might see some NDP support uh, you know, migrate to Liberals closer to election time.
3: Well, Peter, that often happens, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, during an yeah. election campaign, you get people kind of uh, flirting with the idea of voting differently than, than they did last time, and then in the end, they go back to what they see as a as safe choice. So we're, there is still a long way to go.
2: There's still a long way to go. There, there's three weeks. We, we've we got rid of all the nonsense and everything, and uh, now, now it's just, you know, down to whether the parties can convince enough voters to vote for them.
3: Bill, what are your thoughts? Uh, two weeks in, with three weeks to go. Well,
4: one of the most amazing things this has been mentioned by many of the CART members that I uh, talked to is that we we know very clearly what the platforms are for the NDP, who announced theirs even before an election was called. The Conservatives who came out with theirs fairly soon after the election, and we're still waiting to see what the total liberal platform is so when you talk to our uh, potential voters about who they're going to vote for they're still unclear of, of what is actually up for up for for decision and uh, so i'm wondering whether or not that uh, this is a tactic on behalf of the liberals to to leave theirs later so they'll attract support with some strong promises or whether they're so disorganized they really don't know what they want to say at this point, but it's a very strange thing that's confusing a lot of our uh, older uh, Ontario and thinking voters.
3: David, your impressions two weeks in? I don't
5: think this is a platform election. I think this is an election about vibe, about vibes and feelings, and I think that if you look at some of the visceral uh, anti-Trudeau feeling that's out there, particularly among the younger voters, uh, I would think it would be very worrisome to the Liberals. I think it's significant that O'Toole is trying to position himself as a non frightening alternative. And Singh, Jagmeet Singh the other day came out and sort of said that he'd be open to working with a conservative minority if it happened. And I think what he's trying to do is hang on to his people to say, Don't don't panic and leave me uh, in order to, uh, stop O'Toole, mm-hmm. uh, because I can work with O'Toole as well. I don't, he didn't make a big prominent thing out of that, but he did say it. And I think that the, um, feeling now is that, uh, O'Toole is trying very hard to be moderate. I'm not scary. I've got some common sense ideas. You may like them. You may not, but they're not like over the top. And I think Trudeau is just suffering from a, a lot of backlash against real or perceived. I'm not. I'm not going to say, but uh, his uh, lack of delivering on stuff. He's very good at rhetoric. There's been a lot of criticism about, you know, lack of follow through. And I also don't think that the Afghanistan thing is helping at all. So I think we're on a trajectory for a minority government, whether liberal or conservative. Not much movement in the final seat totals, but it'll be interesting to see who uh, nips who at the finish line.
1: David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Ontario's premier made a long-awaited appearance this past Wednesday to announce a plan to move forward on COVID vaccine certificates. Doug Ford had said on a number of previous occasions his government would not be moving forward on issuing them, saying he didn't want a split society. But then a week ago yesterday, following Justin Trudeau's announcement that he would give the provinces a billion dollars to fund vaccine passports, came unofficial word from Queen's Park that Ford's government would relent and issue some form of vaccine certificate that won't be forgeable like the Ministry of Health emails that are sent to people after their vaccinations. The purpose of vaccine passports to prove an individual has been fully vaccinated, allowing them to present this information to non-essential businesses like restaurants, movie theaters, sporting events, and stage productions. To discuss the plan further, Jane was joined on Monday by bioethicist, Dr. Carey Bowman at the U of T and Dr. Colin Furness, Infection Control Epidemiologist and Assistant Professor at the U of T's Faculty of Information.
6: I think it's really important to differentiate between a technology that allows you to do something and then policies that may restrict people's ability to get things done. So really, the the idea of a certificate or an app or whatever it's going to be, it enables. It allows businesses or governments or individuals to require that or make use of it. But then you need a policy framework around that. So you you really have to see these things as as entirely separate. I welcome the technology. I welcome the enabling of being able to do that that kind of verification in certain scenarios. But it needs to be governed.
3: And, and so when you say it needs to be governed, what are what are the considerations uh, before moving forward with this?
6: Well, we have to think about human rights. We have to think about equity. We have to think about uh, access to essential services. We have to think about driving up the cost of things, possibly making some kind of businesses unable to really continue operations. So we just have to look at what you might call unintended effects, I think, of, of this, this kind of thing. And, and also the fact that, you know, governments do sometimes surveil more than they should. And we just want to make sure that this is in proportion.
3: I'll get your reaction as well, Dr. Kerry Bowman.
6: Yeah, you know,
7: Colin makes some very good points, and I agree. Um, you know, so much of it, you know, it's here. Whether we, None of the ethical problems associated with it have gone away at all. But there's a large national and maybe North American consensus that the benefits of this will likely, likely outweigh all of these other concerns. But still a huge obligation. How are we going to do it well is the question. And, you know, we don't really know yet. We know next to nothing about this. Uh, Quebec has some interesting uh, approach. And it seems that the, the opportunity for surveillance in Quebec is quite minimal. Mind you, you know... Our banks, our insurance companies, everybody tells us everything's bulletproof safe until something happens. But, um, you know, so so that is the beginning. But, you know, let's just take an example. You know, if if someone says, okay, well, we're going to do random, you know, we we can't manage the volume. So we're going to check one in every, I don't know what, let's say 12 people or or 20 people, that's actually very ripe for discrimination. Um, Even if it's not in the conscious mind for who you're going to select. Et cetera, et cetera. So, so much of the devil will be in the details, as people say. And the ethical elements of it, we're, we're yet to hear about.
3: Uh, Dr. Furness, do you think these certificates will help prevent further lockdowns, which is, is what the business community is advocating for? I think they, they can, yes.
6: I, I, really hope we never have to use the word lockdown seriously again. And the way you do that is to try and control transmission in other ways. Uh, testing is really important. We in Ontario have decided that testing is not something we're going to do extensively. So we've, we've kind of ruled that out. Our other choices are, are actually pretty limited. And so I think having certain kind of reasonable rules that say, when people are sharing air indoors, you've got to be vaccinated. That would go a long way to controlling transmission, no question.
3: Dr. Bowman, the way Dr. Furness just presented that, does that um, does that dot all the I's and cross all the T's when it c- comes to ethical issues?
7: Not necessarily. I mean, what it does tell me, and, and you know, I think Colin would agree with this, it, it, it's You know, it it is the way forward, and none of the ethical problems have gone away, but this is what we're going to do. Look, I hope it works. I'm not suggesting it's not going to work. I'm not convinced we know for certain it's going to work really well and have been worth all of this. I think it's absolutely right that we should be doing it at this point. But remember, this is not a firewall. That does not mean that the restaurant that you're in is absolutely safe. Uh, There's no way it means something like that. People with medical or religious and religious is a very fleetingly small group of people, by the way, but people with medical, they, they simply can't participate. They're not part of it. Now Quebec is different. And and BC may relent, but boy, the you know the details are really, really important from an ethical point
1: of view. Bioethicist, Dr. Carrie Bowman at the U of T, and Dr. Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist. And assistant professor at the U of T's Faculty of Information. Their conversation with Jane Brown on Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comstock. Coming up after the break,
0: the premier gets a Dear Doug letter from ER doctors. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Komsic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Hundreds of
1: emergency room physicians have signed an open letter to the Premier demanding the provincial PCs increase the pay of critical care nurses and repeal Bill 124. The letter claims emergency departments across the province are in crisis because acute care nursing colleagues are leaving in droves. It goes on to say, quote, several nurses have died, hundreds have become ill with COVID, and now nurses are leaving their profession in unprecedented numbers due to burnout, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the utter disrespect they face from the Ontario government. Bill 124 was introduced by the four Tories back in 2019 and limits regular annual salary increases for public sector workers, including nurses, to 1% for each 12-month period. Joining Jane on Tuesday to discuss Dr. Iyal Golan, an intensive care doctor at Mackenzie Health's Cortellucci Vaughan Hospital, Dr. Chris Kiefer, an ER doctor at an Ontario hospital who's directly involved with the open letter to Doug Ford, Helen Winter, a registered nurse who works in the ER department at an Ontario hospital, and Charlene Stewart, president of CEIU Healthcare, which represents frontline health workers, including registered practical nurses.
8: I mean, we've been uh, trying to deal with this Bill 124 uh, pre-COVID. It was introduced in 2019. We strongly encourage the port government not to do that for frontline workers and the healthcare system because in 2019, we were already experiencing, you know, severe uh, staff shortages, and this was not going to help us with that solution. And then we all have lived through the COVID experience You know, these nurses and these regulatory staff have been crying for help for so long, and you can only do it for so long. And they are saying that their own health and safety is at risk here. Nobody seems to be listening. You've got the frontline crying for help. You've got the doctors uh, picking up and advocating for them. You've got unions doing it. You have all of their regulatory associations doing it. why the Ford government is not repealing bill one twenty four is you know a real question, but more so, even without that bill, these uh, frontline staff are crying for help, and we all need to be very
3: concerned about that. Helen, tell us what's going on from a first hand perspective. in
8: the department I work for work in in the hospital, it, which is no different from any other hospital across the GTA, we have lost f- over fifty percent of our experienced Emerged nurses. Uh, our schedule—we cannot fill those positions. Our schedule is constantly having huge holes, which now means sometimes we're doing double workloads.
3: You've we're lo- tired. You, yeah, I, I believe it. You've lost half of your nursing staff. Yes, we have. And so, how is that working then in terms of scheduling the remaining fifty percent?
8: Well, we do have new graduates coming on. Uh, It takes years of training to become an experienced uh, emerged nurse, years. And these new grads, it's so hard on them. They need people to work with. And the guidance is just not there
3: because it is left. Dr. Kiefer, what motivated the letter to Doug Ford?
9: Well, I think uh, it was a real wake-up call for me, um, seeing that Several times in the last couple of months, we've had to close down a large section of our emergency department. Um, and then talking with the nurses and, you know, Helen Helen is an amazing colleague of mine. Um, these, are, these are very strong professionals. And to see see nurses like this, you know, breaking down at work and crying is, is unbelievable. Again, these are some of the toughest humans that I've ever met. So it was, it was a wake-up call to me, and I felt like I needed to do something to show my support. And really in the midst of morale that's just, you know, in the boots that little action has, has been beautiful. It's brought us together um, as doctors and nurses. um, And uh, I I think it's what's sustaining us. And it's just so inspiring to see these nurses who are so burned out. And so at the, at the end of their wits, um, actually taking even extra time, their home time to advocate for their profession and for, Um, the average Ontarian and the the current and future emergency department patient.
3: Dr. Ayal Golan joins us now. I'll begin by getting your thoughts on what seems to be a nursing crisis in Ontario.
8: The critical care nurses in the eMERGE or in the ICU, they're they're truly wonderful. They're almost angels on earth, these nurses. So uh, I support the nurses more than I support almost any other group just because they are they're the foundation, they're the backbone. So I, I do hope that um, we could figure out how to make sure they get that uh, recognition. Um, but the, the, I think everybody is burnt out. Everybody's tired. Uh, I think that's the general public. I think that's the nurses. That's the respiratory therapists who also don't get a all the accolades and the physicians as well. So I think everybody's tired. And I think the general public as well is tired of COVID as well. and, you know, wave after wave. So, I
1: think it's in all of society. Dr. Iyal Golan, Dr. Chris Kiefer, registered nurse Helen Winter, and SEIU healthcare president Charlene Stewart. This is UMA Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Students whose parents have signed them up for in person learning are about to return to the classroom for a new school year. There's a lot of worrying out there among parents and grandparents with under 12-year-olds since they are not yet eligible for vaccination and could be exposed to the Delta variant. To find out how concerned we should be about the spread in schools and how it'll manifest in children, Jane spoke with Toronto Family Physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, as well as Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, Professor at the School of Occupational Public Health at Ryerson University.
10: This is largely because they haven't been vaccinated. You know, we've heard it is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and that has a lot of truth to it. If you take a look at the number of people who are fully vaccinated who actually come down with COVID-19 in Canada, you're talking less than 1%. Some 90% of people have not been vaccinated at all who are getting COVID-19. So this is a serious concern. Plus, you add to it, the Delta is more than twice as infectious. It's more than twice as contagious. And what do we have? We have all these children, 12 and under, who are not vaccinated at all, returning to
3: schools. Uh, Do you know, uh, Dr. Iris, the way the Delta manifests itself in children?
10: Well, this is it. We're not sure if Delta makes children any sicker than other variants have. What we believe is the majority of kids with Delta have either no symptoms or mild ones like a cough, runny nose, sore throat, fever, or diarrhea. Of course, the common cold is going to be by far the most common cause of symptoms like that. So how do you tell? How do you know if it's a common cold or if it's COVID? Sad news here. The only well, way we know is by testing. You have to test. So Kids with cold symptoms will still need to get tested and stay at home until their test results show that it's not COVID-19. But understand, like, if you take a look at the the population under 19, what percent of the hospitalizations do they form? Less than 2%. Mm-hmm. So these, they're not going to get terribly sick from it, but contagious they are. Dr.
3: Slide, could you add to that?
11: Yeah, what we can look at is uh country's a little bit ahead of us in terms of the school year. Uh, Florida went back to school, I think, first day was August the 10th. Uh, and they're already seeing an increase in uh, incidents and also, uh, believe it or not, hospitalization among children down there. So there are you about, about a month ahead of us. So we need to keep an eye on what's happening in a place like that.
3: But in terms of uh, severe forms of the disease, um, are we seeing any of that in the 11-unders? I suppose if they've been hospitalized, that would be considered severe.
11: Yes, it, it, exactly. It's not, uh, it's not, it's not uh, zero, of course, but, I mean, it is down there, and it's, uh, it's increasing. The figures, I guess, are still being gathered. Now, just looking this morning, looking at the health department in Florida, they're a little bit worried about it. It's, the majority of children that age aren't going to be suffering more than sniffles and a cough and cold, but we don't want to see uh, any uh, cases of serious illness among children that age, and we are seeing it, apparently.
3: Uh, final words, uh, Dr. Sly, as we, we're eight days away from going back to the classroom.
11: Oh my goodness, final, one final word only. <laughs> <My> <laughs> no, no,
3: goodness. you can have a few final words. <laughs> no, that's okay.
11: no I, I think, I think the, the lessons we're learning, we look around the world, is that we do not take this uh, by any means uh, lightly. Uh, we've been lucky so far that the variants so far simply mean that they've it transmitted more effectively. The next variants that come along may be more pathogenic, or they may evade the antibodies, and that'll be going back to almost a square one. This means that we need to start vaccinating the rest of the world as soon as possible, because that's where the variants come from.
3: Dr. Iris?
10: I would suggest that keep your ear to the ground on when vaccinations will become available for children 5 to 11 years old. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is recommending an additional 3,000 kids get, you know, into those trials. So let's just keep our ear to the ground and hope we have a vaccination soon. But the world, definitely, the low-income countries need to get vaccinated, and that's a high priority for the world's health.
1: Toronto Family Physician, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, and Epidemiologist, Dr. Tim Sly, Professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. I'm Bob Compsy, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was
0: and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news
1: stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Beverly and Milton called about Ontario's overworked and unappreciated ICU nurses.
8: Originally, the nurses voted for Uh, 12-hour shifts, and their reasoning was the uh, uh, patient uh, care would be a lot better. You know, I agree if that's the way you feel. However, with technology the way it is, I believe that patient care can be looked after, one, with less time in the hospital for the nurses, two, you employ more nurses Cut back on the hours. Employ more nurses. And instead of worrying about your wage, worry about pension and worry about health care for the nurses.
1: Diana in Toronto called with her thoughts on a provincial vaccine certificate.
8: No, I don't uh, need a certificate. I've been double vaccinated. I have my two little slips and I can present those wherever I go. I would rather see them put the money towards uh, getting the uh, water to the indigenous people uh, I think rather than uh, running around spending millions on a slip that's telling them that we've we've had our our um, you know sl- shots all we need is a little card we present it where we go we've been vaccinated
1: Barry in North York plans to vote green but called to talk about his impressions of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. I would be
2: more inclined to um, vote NDP more than I've ever been before in my first time in my life, because the more I hear this guy, the more he seems genuine, honest, which is really difficult to find in politics, I think, and and just a down-to-earth guy that cares about people. That's if there are only three parts
1: but there are. Brian in Toronto called with his impressions of Justin Trudeau as the Liberal leader seeks re-election.
7: I think that what's happening here, people are just are getting a little tired of Trudeau's uh, pretty boy tactics. Everything is, he's very, he's got great comments, but very little action. All he's done was given serb money out to people that didn't deserve it. We
0: have a deficit that our great-grandchildren will be paying for, and I think it's time for a change. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner
1: of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Joanne in Toronto, who also called about vaccine certificates.
10: I'm more in favour of a passport for travel, international travel or interprovincial travel. I think the money could be better spent uh, protecting ourselves and other people in other countries. I think having a certificate would be a good idea. However, there are too many other issues that get in the way, such as someone at the door having to screen, uh, those people who have medical issues. It's the money issue and it's the ethical issues. If if I was to travel, I would want to know if I'm on a plane that spent, I spent $1,000 for the ticket. I'm not going to be able to get off, but if I walk into a restaurant and I'm uncomfortable, I can walk away from a $30 lunch. Mm-hmm.
1: That does it for today's Best of Fight back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at fightback zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round
0: up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.